Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 65 of Histories of the Unexpected, in which we demonstrate that everything, and I mean simply everything, if you haven't got the message yet, please listen. Everything in the whole world has a history, doesn't it, James? It has a significant story to tell. Like chimneys, the parrots, or hay. Or for me, it's the kneel, the squeal, and the peel. It's God, the sod, and the pod. Or the hod, the pod, and the plod. If you can't guess from all of James's many examples to my three, he writes this bit of the introduction, um, which is fascinating. But um, what's the history of hay all about, James? The history of hay. Ah, you'll have to wait for that exciting it's podcast. About, it's probably about warmth, isn't it? It's all about love, romance, and the hay cart. Sounds amazing. It will be. And we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of the mirror is all about political advice, bad luck, and the discovery of the self. And the graffiti is about Mary, Queen of Scots, the Civil War, and prisons. I came across some wonderful historical graffiti on a, a dog walk the other day. Did you? Um... Near there's a big National Trust house called Killerton. Oh, I love um, Killerton. Uh, I've just got to ask my dog to sit down. He's being really annoying. Momo, sit down. Mo, take your badger we're, over there. We're cleverly recording in the shed yes. with my spaniel. And we have a train. That <laughs> we passes. do. So we're in, my, we're in my shed. So we've got train coming past the end of the garden. Anyway, I was walking the dog um, at Killerton House, and there's an amazingly massive old tree where people have been carving their yep. names into it and dates. And it's a fascinating thing. And the um, the bark's all kind of changed and grown. Um, so there's there's not just a history of graffiti. We've done a podcast on the history of graffiti, and it was one of my favourites. Yes. But there's a history of tree graffiti, which um, I'm really interested in. Anyway, the man sitting opposite me... This is a really good one, really. The man okay. sitting opposite me is the Time Minister of the Yesterday Party. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Davell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. And I have so many to choose from here. And the person sitting opposite me is the beadsman of bookends. It is the famous historical adventurer, the truly wonderful Dr Sam Willis. It's not as good as the Time Minister. I don't know. Seeing you as a beadsman is is, mm. is quite good. So um the it is very good beadsman. The uh, the scrabbling is my dog who I'm going to have to kick out in a minute. Uh, he's having a nice time with his badger though. And today we are doing a, we're following up the Christmas theme, aren't we? We certainly are. And um, because we're going to do the truly amazing history of snow, which we are. you just, I love it. It's all to do with tattoos, DNA, bacchanalian excess, the Boston massacre, cruelty to cats, and various other things. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's, it's brilliant. I mean, it's fa- it's absolutely fascinating, um, and I think looking at how snow has different meanings across time, across cultures, across continents, I think is is really interesting. And I think it's snow itself is contradictory. You know, there it, it's fun, it's exciting, it's beautiful, but at the same time, it is it's menacing. It removes heat and light. It can bury things. It can block roads. It can it can create fun because it's snow days. So when it snows, the school closes down. There are cultures that are incredibly good at dealing with snow. 
Um, I remember living in America uh, and just in, in I lived in Michigan for three years and basically didn't see didn't see grass for four months. But the local authorities, uh, airports were so good at dealing with the snow just so that people could move around. Unlike here in the UK, where you get a sort of slight flurry of snow, as we've had recently, and the country just comes to a, a complete standstill. Although we haven't had snow in Devon. Uh, much to the disappointment of my six-year-old, who has never seen snow. But in Michigan, I mean, it was incredible. At the airport, an, uh, an aircraft would land, and then these trucks would come out, and they would hose down the aeroplane with antifreeze so that it could then just take off again, mm. so geared up. There's something historical about that, though, isn't there? It's not just now in different geographical parts of the world. There are, there are places that are geared up for snow. There are not. You've got yeah. countries like ours, who you'd say that are basically are not geared up for snow at all. But yeah. in the past, yeah. they might well they have might been. Well have and been. it's something yeah. that changes. Yeah. So not only does snow have a history which we're going to explore, but the whole business of being prepared for snow in one single location has a history. And I think the, the idea, what's always fascinated me with the, the history of snow is this one of climate and, and, and how you take it for granted yeah. it's something we're kind of keyed in to, to, to not take it for granted yeah. but um you do and i remember my my granny so she's dead now but patricia willis she was born in 1921 and she would talk about ice skating in hertfordshire yeah. on a lake um yeah. in the park where verulamium the old um, roman city verulamium is in st Albans. so just yeah. just down yeah. from the abbey there if you know it very beautiful kind of flat spot in a lake there anyway she used she and her mates had ice skates and they used to go ice skating regularly on this lake in hertfordshire and i remember as a child being kind of boggled by the fact that a lake in england would freeze hard mm. enough for mm adults to be happy for children to ice skate on. I mean, it really is kind of, it's completely yeah. and utterly alien to me. Do you, do you have any kind of similar old stories like that to do with well, the, I mean, the cold? I remember my own childhood, sort of born in the 70s. Um, my own childhood has a lot of snowy memories. I remember building snowmen. I remember particularly the winter of discontent, 78 to 9, uh, we lived in a little seaside town called Hornsey up in Yorkshire and my father worked in Hull and he used to commute daily, he used to car share and I remember during the winter months he would travel with a shovel in his boot of the car and a thermos flask and a blanket and one night he and his friend John Kilby uh, were driving back and they got caught in the snow and had to basically dig themselves out. They managed to sort of get home, but there were loads of cars that, was that were just left there overnight. And when the snow ploughs came through in the morning, they just went straight through them. Um, so, yeah, I, re I remember that. I remember um, in my road, this was before, before, so I would have been under three because I was two and I was almost three when we moved to... Hornsey so I can remember I can I can actually date one of my earliest memories and it is a snowball bigger than my father that people collectively in the road in which I lived in Worksop in the Midlands were rolling down the street so I have yeah I have lots of snowy memories of that's childhood that's great but that's the community coming together because of snow yes I have a similar beach example with the community coming together to build the biggest hole in the beach. Oh, as it was not a cold oh. story; it's a hot story. But everyone just kept coming down with spades and dug, well, excavated an mm. enormous hole on the beach. Mm. And um, I quite like stories of um, of people coming together you, like that. Have you ever seen an ice storm? 
Have you ever experienced an ice storm? No. I'd one be of, quite scared in an one ice storm. Of the, I mean, once one, an ice storm coming down is, is terrifying because it literally, as it hits the... Um, as it hits the ground, it just freezes, and it's incredibly dangerous. And I remember when I was teaching in the US, uh, my wife taught at the university I was at, and she went to a really early 8 a.m. class. The gritters hadn't been out, and she put her brakes on at a at an intersection, red light, and just then continued to slide for a further five metres out into the middle of the road. Gosh, amazing. Because it was a, but you also look at the aftermath of an ice storm when it comes down and in a beautiful sort of blue sky morning. It is stunning, mm. absolutely stunning. It's like the trees are just bejeweled. Mm. I um, think the, um, the, 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 the weather as, as part of the history of snow is definitely an, yeah. Important, yeah. an important thing. And there, are, there are all sorts of um, ways you could look at this. My... The, what, something I've been coming back to time and again in my career is the history of the Titanic. Yes. Um, and that's all to do with global iceberg, warming. Yeah. So it hit an iceberg. But yeah. now in that part of the Atlantic, there haven't been any icebergs since the late 80s, mm. which mm. is amazing. Mm. It just, it wouldn't... And it probably it, is global warming. It simply wouldn't happen again. Yeah. Because it, there, there aren't icebergs just sort of wandering around that part of the Northern Atlantic. Um, I've got a wonderful story here from um, 1975... Mm. Winter 1975. Aha, James. No, summer 1975. Mid June 1975. This is a report from the Times. Very good. Heavy snow fell over wide areas of Scotland, Snowdonia, Northern England, the East Midlands, and East Anglia yesterday. The unusually cold weather was described by the Meteorological Office at Bracknell and Berkshire as just one of those oddities that we have from time to time. This is June. <laughs> the London Weather Centre said it would appear from records that the last time sleet or snow was reported so widely during an English summer was the 11th of July, 1888. And this is a bit I love. Snow stopped play in three county cricket matches. <laughs> Those at Bradford and Buxton, Derbyshire, were called off without a ball being bowled and the start of, of the one at Colchester, Essex, was delayed. Um, and there's elsewhere in um, in the press from around is, is the uh, the very famous umpire, Dickie Bird. Mm. Um, he, he, he vividly remembers it and he describes it so um this is it's a wonderful description of snow falling in midsummer excellent so do you i mean do you take your environment for granted do i take my environment <laughs> my goodness me what a question to ask um no i think i'm very alert to my environment my immediate sort of environment yeah no i am as well and i also think to change as well i think this is all something to do with being a historian Yes. I think with you know sort of snow falling in the middle of summer or significant changes happening um i think that as a historian, you are more able to um, accept and process and understand mm. the unexpected, mm. essentially. So I think that if you, if something happens to you in the in an environment and you, you don't really know, you're surprised by it, I think you should take that surprise as a warning that you haven't read enough history. Okay. I'm going to talk about Is gloves. Is that a bit, a bit ranty? No, no. I think I, I accept that. Okay. I accept that, but I want to talk about gloves. Okay. Because snow comes back to gloves. And doing my um, doing my work on gloves, and we've talked about gloves in the past, um, I read a fascinating uh, bunch of uh, material about the Little Ice Age and the early modern period of which I profess history um, is basically snowbound. 
the what, winter what months. Dates we're talking about? So we're talking roughly sort of 1550 to about 1750. Okay. So you've got a couple of centuries where historians of climate have labelled it the a, a little ice age. Right. So, you know, and so if we're thinking about what that meant, it meant very cold temperatures, harbours freezing up, um, the Thames in London froze up and you've got evidence of ice fairs. So the whole, you know, people not just ice skating on it, but actually it being big enough so that you can actually have a sort of market type fair and trading uh, on it. We have a lot of depictions of, you know, winter scenes throughout that period. Uh, And you think about what this does to travel and communication, what it does to, you know, people in mountainous villages, um, the impact on agriculture, famine, you know, what people are going to, you know, people who are on the sort of margins of society, you know, how how difficult life must have been for them. And also um, people increasingly wearing gloves, which is what it's all about. Yeah, but it's, it's not, that's actually interesting because it's not necessarily negative, a negative thing for the economy as well, if you think no, about it. So no. at the moment, we're, um, we both live in Exeter and there's a lovely um, Christmas market. Yes. Um, it's all changed now. It's being run by the cathedral. And what they've done is they've got loads of local shops to sell ah, their goods and stuff. So, so good. before we, it would be a kind of an, an influx of French and Belgian and German yep. people selling sausages and crepes. Uh, now it's full of loads Which of people, which is still there. And their sausage, the German sausages are yeah. amazing. But it's it's loads of people from Dartmoor or, or wherever, you know, sort you of know, coming down and selling their local stuff. But it's good. It's good for the um, it's good for the economy. Everyone's having a lovely time. And I reckon that being in the frost fair of sixteen, I'm going to make it up a date here, sixteen sixty three. Is that about right? Uh, 1683 as well. 1683, thank you very much. The Frost Fair Fair of 1683, um, you'd have had local people making a bit of money, maybe selling some some vin show of the early 17th century, and it would have been quite a fun thing to have been around. We have a description from the celebrated diarist John Evelyn. Mm. Oh, so this is Um, when the Thames froze. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's when the the Thames froze. And he, he, he describes, coaches plied from Westminster to the Temple and from several other stairs to and fro... As in the streets, sleds sliding with skeets and a bull baiting, horse and coach races, puppet plays and interludes, cooks tippling and other lewd places, so that it seemed to be a bacchanalian triumph or carnival on the water. Beautifully put. So you can imagine this sort of, you know, this bustling fair. Back to um, back to Exeter's Christmas fair. The only tragedy of it, and I love it, it's brilliant. Two tragedies. One, it finishes a week or so before Christmas. Yep. And what it leaves is a, for the next three months, is a just muddy patch yes. all over it. Which links very nicely to snow, because snow is all very good. So it snowed in Hertfordshire a couple of days ago. My parents sent me a photo of Deep and Crisp and Even, and it, it was like a picture postcard. And then about an hour and a half later, it looked horrific. Yep. Like half sort of yep. frozen grey, horrible. This was my experience of Michigan. Michigan, when, it, when you had that fresh white snow, it is beautiful. And then... You know, driving along the roads, all the snow and ice is packed to either side and all the oil off the cars. Yeah. And it's just a black... Yeah. One, one of the things I like about snow is this the, 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 the nice side to it, the pretty side, the good side to the snow, and then the kind of the darker and evil side to oh, it. No. It's yeah. terrible. It's yeah. terrible. Um, of which, snowballing... Ah! <gasps> Tell us about snowballing, tell the us, history of snowballing. Well, I think you might be better equipped to tell us about snowballing. But, I, I, you know, there are... There I want are... to tell you about snowmen. Are you? I want to tell you about snowmen, the history of snowmen. I've been reading 
The History of the Snowman by Bob Eckstein, mm-hmm. uh, which is a brilliant um, uh, sort of very entertaining uh, little book. Um, and I, you know, I've been obsessed with snowmen uh, ever since uh, being a small boy. I'm obsessed with that, with Frosty the Snowman and, and Raymond Briggs's Snowman. And, um, you know, and there are lots of examples, uh, as this book sort of very nicely sort of shows of snowmen um, throughout history. But one of my favourite uh, examples is this sort of this equivalent of a, of a sort of a snow fair or snow festival in Brussels in the very cold winter of 1510 to 1511, where the citizens of the city build a bewildering number of snowmen all over the city. And we know about this because of the Brussels poet, uh, John Smeakin, uh, who penned a ballad-length um, description of it. And it's bewildering, uh, the the sort of number of of sort of separate snowmen. that they, You can count about 110 individual snowmen, 50 separate scenes. Um, and you can read these not just as sort of, you know, as a sort of fun and children sort of going out and having a bit of fun, but... Because they are put on by the townspeople, yeah. there is often a political sort of message. social commentary. Or... There's social commentary. Mm. Um, and among the characters, folklore figures such as the wild man, a unicorn, mermaids, uh, a sea knight. So there are lots of that are sort of religious and political and civic. And then what, what is fascinating... Sea knight? I've no idea. Can someone get in touch? Tell me what a sea knight... What's that sea sentence knight. again? Sea knight. What was it? A With? sea knight. A mermaid, a mermaid and a sea knight, a knight of the sea. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, I imagine. Like sort of tridenty, yeah, yeah, tridenty, okay. yeah, sort of thing. But what's also interesting is the sort of sexualized sculptures, yep. the sort of scatological sculptures. And one of the best uh, examples could be found in the Rosendale uh, part of the city, which is the red light district of the city, which depicts a prostitute completely naked with breasts and genitalia sculpted to attract attention and between her legs a dog ensconced between her legs wow um and on the sort of more scatological uh, line the poem describes a snow cow that delivered and i quote turds farts and stinking <laughs> That's and brilliant. also also a defecating centaur. No. Uh, a mannequin pee fountain. This is, after all, Brussels, depicting a, a small boy urinating into the mouth of a drinker. And finally, a drunk drowning in his own excrement. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's it's astonishing. A, Rude snowman. It's it's, inc- it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know... It's, I mean, you, it's, it's linked to this whole thing of, um, you know, you might... It's some kind of village in... Middle England somewhere where um, they make a scarecrow and it's made to look like the mayor or, yeah, or exactly. you know, the chief of police exactly. or something like that. So, I mean, what you've got on one hand, you've got the, these sort of civic civic and religious snow people being built that have a sort of, you know, a particular sort of pious or sort of authoritarian image. And then you've got the sort of the, you know, the, the reverse. You've got this kind of bacchanalian sort of, um, you know, sort of social release. Um, you yeah. know, people sort of getting their opinion across in in. But isn't it wonderful? It's no, because it can go. Yes, yes. You know, if they didn't see it, if it, yeah. if it wasn't sketched, if it wasn't written down, there weren't people walking around taking photos. No, no. Um, that's lovely. So it isn't does. It good? It's um. Yes, it's something temporary, which will just. Yeah. It's you're being quite rude, and you can be really quite rude because it's there for a bit, but then it'll go away, yeah. and, and it's like exactly. it never happens. Exactly. Ah. Are you going to tell us about snowballing, or shall I tell us about snowballing? No, I'm going to start because um, I just sort of come back to a sort of military side of things. Ooh. 
it, it's it's snowballing as an example of or a sort of watered down version of warfare. So I become quite interested yeah. in soldiers having oh, snowball fights. Yes. Uh, first World War did they do first World much War? In the first they did. World they did one, and also um, um, uh, the American Civil War. There's a very good example. Uh, but the, the British in the First World War described them as snowball matches, which I think is very British. A bit like cricket. Yeah, exactly. cricket or football. Yeah. Um, were these early on in the First World War before things got too um, hot? I don't think they might, they minded as long right, as it was right. you know a bit of fun. There's a really interesting um, description as well from the 1860s, which is the American Civil War. Um, there's a large-scale snowball fight taking place between Confederate troops in the winter of 1862-63. And this is from a Confederate officer, um, Augustus Dickett. The troops delight in snowballing and reveled in the sport for days at a time. Many hard battles were fought, won and lost, sometimes company against company, then regiment against regiment, and sometimes brigades would be pitted against rival brigades. That's a, that's a full-on snowball war. Yeah. He goes yeah. on to describe a particularly competitive fight between the South Carolina Regiment and the Georgians, um, which details rather sort of mean treatment of combatants. And so they've got large-scale snowball fight going on, and then they start taking people prisoner. Um, when some, he wrote, more bold than the rest, ventured too near, he was caught and dragged through the lines while his comrades made frantic efforts to rescue him. The poor prisoner now safely behind the lines, his fate problematical as down in the snow he was pulled, now on his face, next on his back, then swung round and round by his heels, all the while snow being pushed down his back or in his bosom, his eyes, ears and hair thoroughly filled with the, in quotation marks, the beautiful snow. <laughs> so there's a there's a poor soldier here really struggling with the tongue-in-cheek beauty of the snow. And it's just a great example of soldiers, um, you know, taking this this kind of play a little bit too far. But it's part of the, you know, it's part of the, the more well-known history, I suppose, of, um, of, of, of soldiers playing football yes. in trenches yes. in, in the First World War. But, you know, here they are having fun and snowballing um, was, a, was a big thing in the army if you were around snow. Yeah. It's also about cruelty to cats. Is it? Snow, yes. It's all about cruelty to cats mm. and snowballing. Um, How does that work? Well, works through um, Dylan Thomas. Uh, since we're in sort of Christmassy mood, yeah. uh, and I'm reading through my Christmas catalogue of of little little books that I read uh, every every um, every winter time. A child's How Christmas big is that Christmas catalogue? Uh, it's about a dozen, really, a dozen little ti- mm. little titles, and it's it expands all the time. But a child's Christmas in Wales. Uh, this is it. This is one of them. So this, a, is, a, this is it here. This is uh, this is one of them. A child's Christmas in Wales. It's and illustrated. It's a, it's a beautiful it? little uh, illustrated by Edward Adizorne. Oh. Um, um, D- Dylan Thomas is a is a is a really brilliant poet, but a real cantankerous inebriate. Uh, one of the best descriptions of Dylan Thomas. Uh, is by the wonderful historian A.J.P. Taylor. Do you remember yeah. A.J.P. Taylor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of one of the first sort of great TV historians would stroll onto um, the set uh, and just talk completely without notes. Would basically just deliver a lecture. And in his autobiography, he describes, you know, really well quite how difficult a man Dylan Thomas was. Um, any of you who are interested in in Oxford. Uh, during that period in the fifties and sixties, uh, should certainly turn to um, to A. J. P. Taylor's autobiography. He's got brilliant things to say about Magdalen College uh, and C. S. Lewis uh, in particular. A uh, real sort of viper's nest. 
Anyway, in his in this in this depiction of a a child's Christmas in Wales, and it's a sort of semi autobiographical fictional thing. Um, we've got this sort of we've got the whole thing told through the eyes of of these boys. It was on the afternoon of the day of Christmas Eve, and I was in Mrs. Prothero's garden waiting for cats with her son Jim. It was snowing. It was always snowing at Christmas. December in my memory is white as Lapland though there were no reindeers, but there were cats. Patient, cold and callous, our hands wrapped in socks, we waited to snowball the cats. Sleek and long as jaguars and horrible whiskered spitting and snarling, they would slink and sidle over the white back garden walls and the lynx-eyed hunters, Jim and I, Fur-capped and moccasin trappers from Hudson Bay off Mumbles Road would <laughs> hurl our deadly snowballs at the greens of their eyes. The wise cats never appeared. <laughs> we were so still Eskimo-footed Arctic marksmen in the muffling silence of the eternal snows, eternal ever since Wednesday, that we never heard Mrs. Prothero's first cry from her igloo at the bottom of the garden. So it's it's back to our it's back to our podcast about cats. It is an and evil cat. People yeah. being evil to cats, and it being a kind of a sort of slightly acceptable thing. Yes, um, I love that the uh, the Hudson Bay off Mumbles Road. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> the Eskimo-footed Arctic marksman. Yes, that's truly wonderful, isn't it? Yes, um, and I suppose that it's just one example of people being horrible to cats. We we talked about the one where loads of cats were were murdered in the French yes. Revolution. Yes. Um, prior to the French Revolution. Prior to the French Revolution, that, yeah. that was a, a, a it was it was a way of demonstrating early 1700s the cultural differences yeah. between yeah. between the wealthy and their pampered pets, yeah. and then these these kind of street rat kids yeah. essentially yeah. Um, yeah. making the noises that like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and historians can be very more. can be very cat like, catty, very catty. A um a there was a big debate. About the um, the rise of the gentry, yeah. Uh, and my former uh, supervisor, my supervisor, uh, Ralph Holbrook, tells me this tale about this um, this seminar in in Oxford with an open window and two of the sort of great sort of professors uh, who were debating this period, Tawney and somebody else uh, who I can't remember off the top of my head at the moment, um, were sort of going at it, hammer and tong, and sort of you know fighting each other in the way that um, that David Starkey and Geoffrey Elton. Uh, did uh, about Henry VIII and the court, uh, and then outside of the window there was there was a hush, and outside of the window there were two tomcats like fighting. <laughs> really, yeah. <laughs> yeah. absolutely going for each yeah. other, going yeah. for each other. Well, I think one of the things that I like about the snow is also the it, it goes in a completely different direction here, but it's it's snow is a preserver. Ah. History. So, so we've talked about yes. snow and historians. We've talked about yep. um, snow as a preserver for history and the Scythians. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, um, we saw that brilliant exhibition, didn't we, at the British Library? Yes, we did. Absolutely, which so, was extraordinary. If you haven't been to see it and it's still on, uh, you should go and you should definitely go and see it. Yeah. Um, and um, what's great is it's a Siberian culture from thousands of years ago, and a lot of their burials have been immaculately preserved yep. in the Siberian permafrost. Um, and well, I think one of the most remarkable things is the skin of the Scythians, yep. and, and you can see their tattoos yep. and the vividness of the colour, the... Um, 
and I think the important part here is the remoteness. The fact it's in snowy, yep. freezing landscapes. They weren't grave robbers. It's not like it's in Sutton Hoo. No. You know, and just no. every man and his dog wandering past these mounds that contain contain a Viking ship. Of these these Scythian burials, there are lots of them. Um, there are still tons yep. of them out there which haven't been excavated. But and they gla- haven't been robbed. Glacial archaeology, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there were all sorts of things. I mean, the the tattoos are fascinating. Uh, I think they found four or five bodies intact, covered with tattoos. And normally, you know, these are very... um these are very cold climates that these people would have would have lived in. So normally they'd have been covered in fur. So you, you know, ordinary people, you know, on day to day basis, wouldn't have seen these tattoos. But yet, as historians, we are able to 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 glimpse those. And I think one of them, one of the tattoos that survives, is a sort of snarling tiger. Yeah. Um, so you know how we how we read that about about. Um, you know the sort of warrior class, the sort of bravery of the warrior class. There's also a bag of cheese. Is there that that Perishables. survived? Perishables, things like that that have stayed in the you know the permafrost has preserved, um, and and portable stools. I mean these were an itinerant people as well. So, if you could eat some of that Scythian cheese, what would you have it on? <laughs> I think you would you'd be very ill. Really? If you don't you think? Rivisa. Don't you think does some, cheese last kind of sort of several biscuit? thousand, thousand years? Cream cracker. I'm going for a straight cream cracker. A digestive, I think. A digestive. Or, or a, you know, um, maybe a peppered water biscuit. Mm, very good. Would be so very nice. Not only are there objects for us to look at, but what's really important is that the bodies of the objects have been, sorry, the bodies yep. themselves of the people themselves have been preserved. And this links to something I'm becoming increasingly obsessed about, and that is um, DNA and history. Um, nice. So my current series on BBC Four... Would that be Invasions? That's Invasions with an exclamation mark because it's quite light-hearted and wide-ranging. Excellent. Yeah. Um, I had my DNA tested to find oh. out where I was from. What did it tell you? Well, um... Are you Viking? I am half Viking and I'm half Roman. <laughs> and it's truly, oh, truly extraordinary. Amazing. Yeah. So most people, um, as I understand it, I was told by the people who did the test with... Um, their DNA, you can, you know, if you end up in England, it kind of you can trace these migration routes, and right. and, and they usually end up somewhere quite close to England. Yeah. Mine stop in got two. One of them stops in Rome, and the other one stops in Oslo. Goodness me! Yeah, and that means I have a direct Italian ancestor. It doesn't get kind of lost. I like that. I, I am right. I'm properly Roman, basically. So I God. think it was Caesar. You're the you're and then, half and then, of the best people. Well, the Viking, Viking Roman, do not Viking mess. Roman. Yeah, yeah and, exactly. and the other half is, I think, it's going to be Harold Bluetooth. Um, That's why your Viking axe is on the wall there. Oh, yes, I made that. Behind you. Uh, anyway, there's this lovely chap that was found in the Yukon Territory of Canada. So, mm-hmm. an inhabitant of the Yukon Mountains, where it's very, very cold and there's not much going on. And he was buried um, in in the in the ice. He was found um, wearing a cloak of gopher and squirrel skin. He's carrying a walking stick. Uh, which is interesting for our history of the lean, which we've written we've written a paragraph on uh, a chapter on for our book. We'll do that. Yes. I think it's a podcast. Anyway, carrying a walking stick, so he's leaning leaning chap. Um, he's an iron knife and a spear thrower. He's about somewhere between three hundred and five hundred and fifty years old, which is not too old. Which means you can actually get DNA out. Mm. I think that's that's the important point. Um, anyway, he was found to he was found that he shared DNA with no fewer than seventeen indigenous people living in that Yukon area of Canada, which is wonderful. And they gave him a name, which was Kawad. I'm going to pronounce this wrong. K W A D A Y, Kwaday, Dan, Sitinchi, which means Very in my good. fluent Yukon, um, it means long ago person found, um, which I think is wonderful. 
it's a wonderful title and it makes me quite happy to be a historian to be able to talk yes. about all of these people long ago and that we can uncover them whether mm. we do it through books or whether we dig up their bodies or whatever but that's essentially what we do we we're trying to find and understand long ago people mm. snow is an archive snow is an archive yes yeah so it, it yeah that's amazing isn't it it is good oh I think we're done. I think we're done. Let's leave it there. That was um, that was very fascinating. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please check out historyhit.com forward slash unexpected, where you've got all of our other fairly bonkers episodes. We're proud to be part of Dan Stowe's History Hit Network, so please check that out. Check out all of the other brilliant shows that they do. And check us out on Twitter as well. You can follow me at James Daybell, and you can follow Histories of the Unexpected at Unexpected Pod. And I'm on at Dr. Sam Willis. Um, we'd love you to get in touch, so do please do that and listen again soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.